0: Good morning. It's my privilege to just gather with you and uh, participate in your worship, and as we have a chance to turn to the Word of God. Um, as your pastor mentioned there, my family has just uh, transitioned this last year from a pastoral ministry in the Ottawa Valley, a little place called Lindock. Uh, if you've heard of Quadville, you probably haven't, but that's fine. Um, I hadn't either. So we had been ministering there since 2009, and just last year the Lord um, continued to move in our hearts and prompt us to head to the foreign mission field. So I'll be teaching at a seminary down in Lima, Peru, and my wife will be helping um, through mainly biblical counseling at a prenatal center, a crisis pregnancy type of center there in Lima. Um, So I do have a table out here in the foyer, and if you have ever been interested at all, or maybe you're just thinking about it for the first time, about doing some sort of mission work, uh, foreign missions, whether as an intern, uh, short term, as a student, or as a career, Um, there's a lot of resources there for you, and they're for you, so uh, go out there and you can grab those and get connected Um, I've uh, told people before that if you have a bit of a burden or a a gift and a talent and maybe you think, hmm, I have an interest in doing this, there's probably somewhere in the world that there's someone praying that someone just like you would go there and minister according to your gift and your purpose. So um, follow through on that. And um, I hope that maybe uh, through our resources we could be a bit of a a help to you in that. We're going to be turning to the uh, epistle of Hebrews together now in your, the Bibles that are under your seats anyways, it's page 974. We're going to be in chapter 11. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11. And while you're turning there, I'm just going to pray for our time together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much again for your word. We thank you for your presence here with us. And we thank you for the clear, unchanging pattern that you have for us to live by. We thank you for um, sending your son, our Lord Jesus, to die on the cross in our place for our sins. And I pray that through our time together uh, today, that you could just reveal yourself a little more to us. That you could... Meet the needs that are here, that each of us are seeking for, that we would just find those met in you and in you alone. We thank you so much for always being there and always being ready to receive us. So I just pray that this would be a step in that process for each of us together this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been a follower of Jesus for any amount of time or even if you have just Kind of casually observed Christianity, you would realize that there are continually different trends being blown through of what the Christian life should look like. Um, all it seems to take is a new book, a uh, persuasive teacher or preacher, a uh, successful ministry, and all of a sudden there's a new paradigm, and this is the way that things are supposed to happen. This is how things should look like in Christianity. And inevitably, each new generation looks at the previous and says, "You didn't know how you were doing it. You got it all wrong. Let us let's rework, retool everything. Out with the old, in with the new. Relevancy is our our new, you know, central tenant. And sometimes that's good. It's good to rework ourselves and get ourselves in line better with Scripture. But something that sometimes suffers with that is The perspective of Christianity, that it's something that is different day by day. That it's not the same thing today to be a Christian as it was last year. That there's some new, better way to do this thing. That ten years ago, um, we really have made this great advancement. That a hundred years ago, that a thousand years ago, they just didn't get what it was to be a person of faith. See, there should be a constant in the life of a person of faith. And that is the word of God speaking into their life. And that is something that is unchanging. So we're going to look into his word together today and ask ourselves, what does a person of faith, what is, how can we crystallize this? What does this look like? It may have many expressions, but what does scripture speak of when it talks about a person of faith? Now, I realize even as I begin to talk about faith and a person of faith, that there are many different perspectives on that you may hear something different than the person sitting beside you for some to say a person of faith is really an insult an accusation of weakness as if like oh you're one of those believers you got to believe you got this crutch in life that you know you, you you can't get through without leaning on this this imaginary god of yours for other people they hear something very subjective as if this is something that you kind of have contrived yourself, right? You take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, you put it together, and that's how you live, and that's your religion, and that's your, your faith. But there's a third way to talk about faith that has to do with the, the placing of trust in something, an object of faith, whether it be a message or expressly in scriptures, a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is this third way we need to realize, regardless of what perspective you may have today on faith and a person of faith, it is this third way that the Bible describes faith. It talks about a person, a life, a a man, a woman of faith as someone who has expressly believed in a message and in a person. Very simply, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so here's the the gospel message that Jesus was sent to this earth to die on the cross for the sins of mankind. He was there not just as some fact of history, but in your place for your sins. This is the message of Scripture. But a person of faith doesn't just have faith for a moment and boom, they're saved and and God gives them new life. That is part of it, but it doesn't end there. That's just the beginning of a life of faith. See, when we trust in Christ as our Savior, that ought to just kickstart the beginning of a life that then lives in a reflection of that Faith that we placed in Him. It is an ongoing. It is something continual that ought to be in our lives. We continue to live by that faith. And so the question we want to ask today is: What should that life look like? Should we buy into the minimalism model? Should we buy into the the aesthetic? Should we be the monk up on the pillar for forty days? Should we? What, what should this look like? What is the? What is God expecting of us? What? pleases God. And we see this described in Hebrews chapter 11. You look down in verse number 5 and 6 with me. By faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. See, many times we turn to verse 6. We say this is what faith is all about. But you notice this little thing called a conjunction. Go back to school in your mind for a moment. It's an and here. It might be a but in your translation at the beginning of verse 6. It's telling us that this verse, verse 6, is built on something that came before – in context here, it's saying the life of Enoch is the example of faith, this type of faith that is then brought in an application in verse number 6. And so who, who is this Enoch? If we have to have this kind of faith to please God, then who is this example of this faith? And just for a little heads up, where we're going is, I'd like us to see through the life-death of Enoch, a person of faith is someone who walks with God, enjoys him while anticipating victory over the curse through Jesus. So let's look at the life of Enoch. You happen to find that in Genesis chapter 5. That's page number 4 in your Bible there, so much easier for you to find possibly. He His whole life is kind of condensed here in Genesis 5 for us. And we turn to Scripture to find out about him because you know, there are lots of um, legends about Enoch, by the way. Um, one legend is that he was the first to make clothes, that he was the first to kind of cut leather and to, you know, put clothes together. And I would have to say, well, wasn't God the first one to do that for Adam and Eve? But, you know, that's how the legend goes. Um, the legend that he was the first to put sh- make shoes uh, would have been handy back then. But uh, we have... Really no evidence that that's what he actually did. Um, There's another legend that he was the first to teach from and write books. Well, I don't know if any of those are true, and probably none of them are, but we do find an accurate record about him in Genesis chapter 5. So why don't we turn there together. And if you're there, look back at the first verse in the chapter. It says, This is the written account of Adam's family line. And then what do we get into? Your favorite kind of literature in all the Bible, right? A genealogy. I know when you go to do your devotions, you always go to Genesis 5 or 11. Chronicles, I'm sure, is a real highlight. Matthew 1, you're just reading those first few verses all the time. A genealogy. I can see it on um, your faces. Boring and I can kind of announce maybe I'm committing a suicide as your speaker here by going my first time at your church preaching from a genealogy. So you can throw me out after. I have a few minutes here. This is part of God's Word, but it seems a little irrelevant at times. Um, this, or I should say because of this, many interpreters are going to come to a genealogy and do some kind of funky stuff. Uh, They're looking for something in this passage to make it really, you know, have some some pow and stand out. So you can write off the names as fictional or you can say that the meaning of the names added all up equals this and it's the secret code and you can do all kinds of things here. But I would submit that we don't have to do any of that because God has communicated to us through normal human means of communication. And so we can study this and interpret it in light of its context, look for what the author was originally trying to say, and it's God's inspired word, that has meaning, that has relevance, and that should be good enough for us. So that's what we're going to look for together today. Not a secret code, but just pay attention to what God says and how he's saying it. And in the first verse, it's, In a way, uh, a main sectional break here where it says, the written account of Adam's family line. And again, in some of our English translations here, it says, um, these are the generations of. And that is kind of grasping this idea that this this is the line. These are those birthed from the line of Adam. This is what happens to them. So in Genesis, here, we're being told, okay, this is what happens to Adam. Genesis 3, the sin and rebellion and curse came because of that sin, and trouble kind of unfolds from there down. What happens to his family line, though? Well, that's what this genealogy indicates. And as we look at this, we're going to realize that it's very repetitious, one of the reasons why you skim through it really quick, right? Moses uses this repeated formula over and over and over again. Look in verses 3 through 5, for example. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived a total of 9, er, 930 years, and then he died. Okay? Exciting, right? You got your pillow out yet? I hope don't not. Uh, uh, the formula here though, so and so. They lived this many years, they begot so and so, they lived this many years after begetting so and so. They lived this many years altogether, then they died. Okay? And it goes over and over and over again, and you could go but right through this and put yourself to sleep by the fifth entry, probably I'm guessing right now. But let's look down to verse twenty one. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. okay Same pattern, nothing changed so far. What are we expecting in verse 22? That same pattern uh, to be f- followed um, about the life of Enoch. But what does it say? After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch it doesn't say he lived, it says he walked. Faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. What happened to this beautiful, smooth, repetitious pattern? It shattered. And often, we should realize this, when we're reading any literature, and including Scripture, when there is something repeated and repetitious over and over and over, often the author's doing that because he's about to break that pattern. He's about to bring an anomaly, introduce something, so that the break of pattern brings it to the reader's attention. It, it shows its prominence in his message. And this is exactly what's going on here. All of the other entries into uh, Adam's um, lineage, they lived and died. But Enoch walked with God. The implication here is that walking with God is a cut above just living. Walking with God is a cut above just living. Uh, One author put it this way, living is merely existing Walking with God is realizing the purpose for which we were created. Do you get that? You see how he stands out here in this passage? And unfortunately, many times, many parts of our lives, and many of us, maybe for our whole life, we just live, right? You're just living. You're just getting done what you need to get done. You get up, you live your day, you sleep. Maybe you don't sleep very much, but it's the same old thing. Day after day after day, you're living. And at the end of your life, what happens? You die, okay? And so for in many um, of our lives, our testimonies almost, if we were to put a witness of our life, it would just fit right in here with the rest of Adam's descendants. This guy lived. It was popular to have kids back then, apparently. So you had some kids. Maybe you didn't, but they all did. Um, They lived a bunch of years. Probably your number is going to be much smaller than these. And then you die. But walking with God is more. What's the chief end of man? According to the Westminster Confession, anyways, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I think they got it right there. What we forget sometimes is that God wants your forever to start right now. Enjoy him. Walk with him starting now. This is the offer that God has for us through our Lord Jesus. But unfortunately, as I said, many of us are just living our lives. Uh, C.S. Lewis put it this way. Most of us are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex when something incredible is being offered to us. We're like children making mud pies in a slum while a holiday at the beach is offered to us. We are far too easily pleased. You might ask, okay, Enoch walked with God, but why does Hebrews then use him as an example of faith? How is walking with God a feat of faith? Well, I see two aspects of this pointed to in the context here. Uh, We see it must have been a feat of faith because of the longevity with which he walked with God. Look down in the passage again. How many years did he live? Three sixty-five. Whoa! And and from Hebrews, we get a little more about this walk with God, that it's to please God with faithful living. To obey him. Remember, uh, Enoch is commended as one who pleases God. 365 years? I struggle for a day. Okay? You struggle for a day. Maybe a week. You're more spiritual than me. Um, You struggle for a week to keep that consistent walk with God. Maybe you've got it down for a month at a time and then you take a few days off. But here is the, the amazing feat of faith here. He was walking with God throughout his life. 365 years. And this is hard, because when you walk with God, it's not God walking with us, that's how we think about it, it's us walking with Him. And His pace changes at times, and we don't have control. Sometimes walking with God, we have to go very quickly, like a speed walk or a run. And the test in our lives is whether we're going to be faithful and obedient. I think of a time of adjustment I had in my life, just you know, my vast experience as a human being. You can tell by my age. Um, my first year in pastoral ministry was also my first year of marriage. And uh, there was a lot to adjust to all at once and getting, okay, um, getting these messages ready in the week and getting this done. And it, it was, like many of you experienced, a new, a new job, new responsibilities, um, separating work from home and figuring all that out. Did I mention it was my first year of marriage? Okay, so there's a lot of challenges. We're working things out. I'm not the easiest guy to live with. Uh, so here is this ongoing adjustment. A lot thrown at you. You've got to go kind of quickly in that. The God's pace for a time, you've got to be focusing on your faithfulness and obedience. Um, we also had our first uh, child born in that first year of ministry. He wasn't supposed to be born in that year, but he uh, popped out 10 weeks early, uh, three pounds, three ounces, and so that was a little bit of a shocker and an adjustment, and things were thrown at us very quickly. But then sometimes God's pace slows down, doesn't it? And the test is patience to keep pace with God. Then for me, it was seven weeks in a hospital, watching my little baby child grow in an incubator with little to nothing that I can do other than pray. In those times, when God is walking very slowly, we struggle with patience. And I know all of you have stories just like this. Sometimes he takes us to places we don't want to go, like a hospital or financial hardship or struggles or, you know, name it. Maybe even a location, moving away from friends or family or from your church or or whatever it might be. So walking with God takes faith because it's a lifelong journey. Enoch did it for 365 years. In this context of Genesis, though, we see that it was also a feat of faith. It was also difficult because of the difficulty of the world in which Enoch lived. I mean, Adam had it great. He was in paradise. He was in the garden, blew that. And then seven generations later comes Enoch, still pre-flood though, coming before the flood took place. And what was the world like at that time? Oh, just, just roses, right? No, I'll read the next chapter sometime. Genesis 6. It was so bad, God decides to blot the deeds of man off the earth and wash them away through a flood. I mean, that's a difficult environment to be in. He is the first out of all of Adam's line to be mentioned as one who actually walks with God. So he stood out. He gave up on acceptance. He had to fight hard to not walk the pace of the world and those around him and get caught up in all of those priorities. I mentioned uh, that there's another place in the Bible that talks about Enoch. It's in Jude. And there we find out that Enoch was, as people who walk with God will do, he was sharing God's message with those around him. And it says there that this is what Enoch had to say. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his, of his saints rather, to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are, count the ungodlies with me, that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. What characterized his world? on godliness, okay, fill in the blank. It's, uh, it, it's demonstrated for us throughout Scripture here. Uh, sometimes we think that the 21st century has a monopoly on sin, like as if the things are worse than they ever were. And things are admittedly bad, and all of you are in a bad circumstance, a bad situation. You don't have to look far to see the prominence of a world that could care less about God and is living out their convictions, Right? But Enoch had it hard too. And so this is a feat of faith because despite everything going on around him, he was devoted to keeping pace with God. So in the life of Enoch, we see that a person of faith is someone who doesn't just live, they walk with God. And that is a cut above that existence that is out there. The world will try to to make that life, that living, flowery and and, uh, attractive and say, if you just do this or that or find this purpose and that, that it will all be fulfilling. And what it's missing is the purpose for which we were created, to enjoy God forever. So we've seen in the life of Enoch and learned a person of faith does not simply live they walk with god and we could stop there and say where is this priority in your life but second hey it's not fun to stop there let's observe the death of enoch okay in verse 24 now no by the way what should we be expecting according to this repetitious pattern that's been laid out for us coming into genesis 5 um, no one has died of natural causes yet. Three people have been murdered, but uh, no one just died yet. And then we hit Genesis 5 and this genealogy. And how does every life end? And he died. Adam and he died. Seth and he died. Enosh and he died. Kenan and he died. Mahalalel and he died. Jared and he died. Enoch, verse 24, Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. See, a person of faith doesn't simply live, they walk with God. And a person of faith doesn't simply die, they walk on to be with God. What this tells us is just as walking with God is a cut above regular living, walking with God also provides for us the antidote for one of our basic fears, which is the fear of death. Uh, Francis Bacon put it this way, men fear death as children fear going into the dark. It's the unknown, right? Even uh, Shakespeare had a a whack at the fear of death in his uh, character Hamlet. He said, the dread of something after death. And isn't that it? Ceasing to exist is one thing. Something coming after that, that's where some of the fear is sparked. But not so for Enoch. And listen to how Charles Spurgeon comments on the life and the death of Enoch. He says, What a splendid walk, a walk of 300 years. One might desire a change of company if he walked with anyone else. Okay, How many of you are at your 50th wedding anniversary? Um, maybe you can relate to that statement. But to walk with God for three centuries was so sweet that the patriarch kept on with his walk until he walked beyond time and space and walked into paradise where he is still marching on in the same divine company he had heaven on earth and it was therefore not so wonderful that he glided away from earth to heaven so easily think about that that's what your walk with god now benefits you at the end of your life a smooth transition from this life to next Because you've got the same companion, the same friend, the same confidant just going on into eternity. Peter Pan was right. To die will be an awfully big adventure for the person of faith. So, what a life of faith, what a death of faith we see in Enoch. Completely different because he was walking faithfully with God. Now, I don't know what it looked like for him to pass on from this world. Um, some some will talk about it. He, he was translated from this life to the next. I don't know if it was kind of the fiery chariot, like the Elijah thing and the, you know, coming for to carry me home type of picture being dragged off. I don't know how a sci-fi picture or a movie would kind of depict this. Enoch, you know, being transported, disappearing. I don't know what it would exactly look like. And I can't promise that that's what your end of existence here on earth is going to be like. But that doesn't mean we can't enjoy the same transition from this life to the next. Because God has taken the sting of death out of this life. Through Christ's finished work on the cross, he didn't just die on the cross, he was buried, and he rose again, demonstrating victory, not just over sin, but over death. So we can enjoy the same comfort. Uh, Hebrews 2 puts it this way. We can find comfort in this. Since the children have flesh and blood, speaking of Jesus, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death see what the life that is lived, walking with God offers? Heaven on earth, fellowship with him each and every day, a cut above just existing, but also a, fear, a freedom from the fear of death, anticipating that we have partaken with Christ in his victory over death. So we've seen the life of Enoch, the death of Enoch. Let's uh, turn back to Hebrews 11, and we'll go back to verse 6, and and we'll find our application here. And remember, don't miss the connection of verse 6 and Enoch. Uh, We approach Scripture sometimes as if it was written in a vacuum and just take one verse at a time. No, the the verse 6 was built on the teaching and the understanding of Enoch and how he lived. The author of Hebrews is telling his audience, as he's kind of telling us as well, if we want to have the walk that Enoch had, we have to have the faith that Enoch also had. And this is the type of faith that he had, as we read here. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, or that he is. Um, Here we have, obviously in one aspect, where it all begins. Opening our minds to the acceptance that, oh, there could have been a God. (laughs) There could be a God. Could have been even a creator. And and maybe you haven't even got to that point yet in your own mind. Uh, Maybe you're kind of hesitant to even, you know, listen to that. And that's your, your drawback from this whole Bible stuff in the first place. So in a sense... Our, our step, our walk of faith does begin in the acceptance that there must be some God that exists out there somewhere. But I believe in coming in this, in this um, section of scripture, and especially in reflection of the life of Enoch, it's a belief that God is, not just that he exists, but that he is who he says he is. See, Enoch didn't really struggle with atheism. Um, The audience that Hebrews is written to, they were Jewish people scattered across the ancient world. Their primary challenge wasn't atheism either. The challenge we all have is taking God at his word. Believing that he is who he says he is. See, many times what we do is we take the parts of God that we like. We like the love and the forgiveness. And we focus on that long enough and we read enough books and follow enough Christian trends that are all about love and forgiveness long enough. And so we minimize the doctrine of hell and of eternal punishment. And others like the doctrines of hell and eternal punishment and completely negate that of love and say, you know, those people out there, those degenerates, they don't deserve the love of God anyways. So, you know, let's not even highlight on that. And I like to call those people Baptists, okay? The, 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 this one-sided look at how things are. What this is, and, and we, have this, we all have this tendency, what we're doing is creating our own golden calf and saying, this is what God is. And I would say that if the majority of Christianity around the world today was confronted with kind of a full orb teaching of who God is and all of his attributes, they'd probably say, who's that guy? Whose God is that? That's not my God. See, we need to accept God for who he says he is. And our walk is going to be determined by who we believe God to be. We can't get caught up in a certain trend. We need to stay caught up in God himself. And so sometimes we need to go back to a verse like this and start kind of removing all those labels that we've affixed to ourselves. Oh, I'm a rip that off, rip this off, rip all the labels that we put on ourselves and other people around us and say, wait. Who is God? That's who I'm pursuing. That's who I want to be associated with. That's who I'm walking with day by day. Who is he? Who has he revealed himself to be? And obviously I can't get into all of that. We wouldn't have enough time. That's what we're going to be doing in all of eternity is learning about more and more the depths, and intricacies and the amazingness of who God is. Something that's incomprehensible for us at the human level. So let's just look at who God says he is in this verse. Believe that he exists, that he is, that he is who he says he is, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So what do we learn from this about God? I see that God not only can be found, he wants to be found. Do you see that? Now, not because he needs to be found. Um, it's not that God created mankind because he had some lack in himself. No, he was completely uh, um, uh, full and without lack. And yet for some inexplicable reason, he wanted to know us. He wanted a relationship with us. He created you because, I don't know why, but he wanted you to walk with him day by day. And God the Father sent the Son to earth to become human, to save humanity for this very reason. Because even when we turned our backs on him, he still said, it is worth me dying in order to bring these people back into right relationship with me. The arms are extended. The invitation is out. God wants you to find him. He's extended the invitation through his son. Peter tells us, draw close to God, and he's going to reciprocate. He will draw close to you. James 1, God is not a reproaching God. He's not going to turn you away when you go to him asking. Okay, this is who God is. Do you accept that? Do you believe it? He Not only can be found, he wants you to seek him and find him. What else do we learn in this end of this verse about God? He rewards. God is a rewarder. Now, we, what kind of a rewarder? Good question. We could go into all kinds of areas, right? He gives eternal life, and he, and he gives all these blessings for this and that. We could go all these areas, so I'm just going to summarize it by saying, the good kind. Okay, The good kind of reward. That's how God always rewards. Uh, a classic example of this is in Jeremiah 32. He's speaking to Israel and he says, "I will make with them an everlasting covenant. I will not turn away from doing them good. I will rejoice in doing them good with all my heart." Do you hear that? He delights in doing good to his people. And he doesn't do good sometimes and bad others. If we were to make a checklist, we'd say, yeah, yeah, he does. Look at all this bad stuff in my life. Believe that God is who he says he is, a rewarder, a good rewarder. That means that even the bad that's brought into our lives, what he's doing is these rearranging circumstances. Why? To do more good for his people. That's who God says he is. Do we believe that that is who he is? George Mueller, a man who believed that God never turns away from doing good. Um, He went through many hardships. Read his biography. He was tested. His faith was tested day by day. One of the biggest tests for him was when his wife died of rheumatic fever. And uh, in typical George Mueller fashion, he decided he was going to preach at the funeral service. Okay? This is not going to be my choice. I wouldn't recommend it, men. Um, Grieve a little bit. But here, he, said, he wanted to do this, and he chose a text of Psalm 119, 68, 68, which says, Thou art good, and do good. What an amazing passage for a funeral message. Here are his points, three points. The Lord was good, and did good in giving her to me. The Lord was good, and did good in so long leaving her with me. And his third, the Lord was good and did good in taking her from me. Now, to take it out of his context and put it into our own, could we insert all of our life circumstances into those statements? See, someone who believes that God is a rewarder and will do good to his people can. Because regardless of the circumstances, our faith in him supersedes the challenges, the daily grind of walking with him. There is a condition at the end of this verse and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, don't be confused and think that this is saying this is how you receive forgiveness or this is how you get saved is by earnestly seeking God. No, we know that all of the work for our salvation, for us to be redeemed and brought into the family of God is finished. Christ finished it on the cross. And he said, it is finished, okay? So all of that is done. There's no more work to be done to be saved, to be joined into God's family. But we can't allow our, uh, a view of sovereign grace to overwhelm just the fact that God still wants us to seek him though. He wants us to diligently Pursue him in our daily walk and relationship with him. So through all the noise in Christianity today, all of the trends that come and go and that many of you have lived through, the scripture clarifies and crystallizes what a walk of faith ought to look like. It uses the example of Enoch, a person of faith, doesn't just live, they walk With God, they don't just die, they walk on to be with God. So a person of faith is someone who walks with God, enjoying Him and anticipating victory over the curse through Jesus Christ. And that removes all fear of death. So are you living or walking with God? You know, some are dreaming of winning the lottery and all the good things that that would bring. That's one in a million shot, you know, or even worse odds. I don't even know what the odds are. But here's the offer. Heaven on earth. Relationship with your creator. Walking with God. And it's not one in a million. It's been extended to each one of us through Jesus Christ. So it comes down to one of two decisions. Either your first initial to trust in Christ as your Savior believing that he did die on the cross for your sins in your place and start your walk with God today. Or maybe you are a person of faith, yet your faith is shallow. You've taken for granted this immense opportunity you have every day to get, pull that day out of the grind and the repetitious pattern, this cycle of life and death and seeming so irrelevant and like there's no purpose to it and walking with God. Far too many that call themselves Christians live far too much of their lives walking far from Christ. How can we do it? Walk by faith, for without faith, it is impossible to please God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that your word would just be a sharp and two-edged sword in our midst here, whether um, right here in this room or those who might be watching from their own homes online. I pray that you would once again extend to them your invitation, that you would make your presence known to them right now, that they would be um, comforted in the fact that you want to be found. And I pray that that uh, journey would begin today. Or that there would just be more devotion to this idea of walking with you. Lord, our mission, our service, all these other areas of our life that are so important to what it is to be a person of faith, they all come under this umbrella and will flow out of our walk in relationship with you. So I pray you would give us strength to do exactly this, to walk as Enoch walked walk by faith. Father, we thank you for your forgiveness when we do not. I pray that each of us would um, find that forgiveness and find you together today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.